If you are handed one of the Black Church Bibles as you walked in, we're going to start on page 900, which is looking at the eyewitness account of Jesus' life from John. So John chapter 13, and we're going to start at verse 21 and read all the way through to chapter 14, verse 14. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, Buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterwards. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the cock will not crow till you have denied me three times. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also, and you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the father. How can you say, show us the father? Do you not believe that I am in the father? And the Father is in me. The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, 
but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me for anything in my name, I will do it. Thank you, Jesse, and thank you very much, Norman and Richard and Yuko and Robert and his team for leading us in music. One of the features of Chalmers is the ever-revolving door. Today that door revolves again with Andrew and Alison. Carnahan is the head to Northern Ireland. I want to just say one thing to you, apart from thank you. Um, you always had, well, since you married, going back to Northern Ireland was always going to happen. But um, I want to thank you for staying a year longer than you naturally wanted to do because there was a door of service that you needed to walk through here for a year. And you've done that. So thank you for that. And God bless you both as uh, you go to Northern Ireland. And uh, please stop leaving. And yet, there is something really healthy about the right kind of leaving, especially from a city church. There's got to be a revolving door. There's got to be a revolving door. And uh, rightly, um, we're seeing that more and more, and we uh, trust um, God um, in that. Just a little message from Johnny and Fiona and Finlay and James up in Aberdeen. They've moved into their new house just a couple of days ago. They're settling in. And um, Johnny begins work in Hebron as their pastor teacher uh, on the 25th, so a week on Monday, he begins at Hebron. So do pray uh, for them. Now, there are some notes on the back of the service sheet uh, on Sunday mornings to July and August. We're looking at John's Gospel, chapters 13 through 17, and Jesus' farewell discourse to his disciples also referred to as the Upper Room Discourse. It is the night before his crucifixion, and it's very important that we remember that these words are uh, spoken at that particular time, at that particular juncture, which reveals uh, many things, but not least the, the heart of Jesus for us, that he should be so concerned the day before he is Uh, dying on a cross, bearing the wrath of his Father, his concern for us. Now, these words, famous words, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me, are perhaps amongst the most misused words at funerals. Misused if they are taken out of context. Without the verse, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. But that aside, for those who are believers, they are extraordinarily precious words and truths. Precious words from Jesus, 
precious promise to believers. Not, note, let me say it again, let not your hearts be troubled, believe in God, believe also in me. Not a promise that the believer will be exempted from difficulties and circumstances that trouble us, cause us to doubt, fear, and question. The Lord Jesus does not promise that in this life. What he promises is that by believing in God and that by believing in Jesus, our hearts, and the heart in the Bible means the center of our being, that which affects all else, need not be troubled, disturbed, shaken, broken, because we believe in God and believe in Jesus. It is not mind over matter. The reason not to be troubled is the Christian's belief in a person, Jesus Christ, in God our Father, Jesus our Savior, and in the Holy Spirit, belief in them that we are steadied, reassured, comforted as we depend on them, trust in all their promises to us, let not your hearts be troubled. Now, notice that Jesus' words are not, let not your hearts be troubled because you believe in God, because you believe in me. That is true, of course. So, there'd be a danger that we reflect on these words as a kind of truth, abstractly. What Jesus says, by taking a grip of us, and by putting his hands, as it were, on our shoulders, and looking us in the eye, let not your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust in me. And through his word, we hear these words from the person of Jesus Christ, no less personally than when he spoke to them that night. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. And there is no superficiality. There is no pop psychology. But there is good psychology. And the Lord Jesus knows that Many times we listen to these words, let not your hearts be troubled, and they bounce off our minds, off our hearts, off our lives. And he will keep saying to us, believe in me. Believe in me. Over the years as a pastor, not least in my own life and many of your lives, there are difficulties, whether physical or mental health issues or all manner of different things. And sometimes as Christians, we think that people do not need professional medical care. There is nothing better than an excellent primary carer, a GP. 
And I've known many of you to have such a person, or the care of a psychiatrist or a psychologist or any particular medical expertise. It is absolutely appropriate that Christians avail themselves in their trouble with all of these resources. But in the context of all of that, the resources we have in God are the most important, are the very best care that anyone can receive. Now, if you're not a Christian, you might be hearing that as something that is helpful and good for those who have faith. You're nowhere near the sort of patronizing comment that sometimes Christians purport to people who aren't Christians, which is not true, that Christianity is a crutch. You're not thinking that. People don't think that. We're just glad if people in life find something that is helpful to them. Let me bring you back, though, to the very heart of Jesus' comments, and all that has proceeded in John's gospel has demonstrated through hard empirical evidence of the most extraordinary miracles to show that He is not only a man but the Son of God. It is faith in Him. And He's saying these things the night before he dies on a cross. It is him who says into the very depths of our human condition, trust in God, trust in me. Now, these are precious words, but like all words, and I mentioned this at the beginning, these words are not spoken in isolation. Jesus did not say in that upper room, let not your hearts be troubled, trust in God, trust also in me. He said these words in the midst of many other words. And so our job is to understand them in the context. Now, the evening began, and we looked at this last week, um, by Jesus washing his disciples' feet. He did that, as we observed, fully conscious of who he is, the eternal Son of God. He took upon himself the nature of the servant, even to the extent of washing his disciples' feet. Now, immediately in the context, you hear the words, let not your hearts be troubled, trust in God, trust also in me, and in our minds, what is in our minds is the picture of Jesus Christ washing the disciples' feet and our feet. The acts of humility and humiliation, for there is no more menial act, is a picture of what Jesus will do the next day on the cross. Fully conscious of who He is, the eternal Son of God, He took upon Himself the nature of a servant in giving His life. He went to his death to serve us, but not just to his death, even death on a cross. Humility and humiliation 
So the one who showed us the extent of the love of God at its fullness and the extent of the servant heart at its fullness, who washes us clean of our sin, is the one who says, let not your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust in me. In other words, the one man who is God in all of human history, who has done something for us that is greater, that is more loving, that is more servant-hearted, that is unique in its effectual uh, nature to wash us clean, that person says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Jesus serves his disciples by washing them, and he calls them to follow his example. Do as I have done, he says. The call to serve one another is an act of conscious volition, but in the capacity and power of the Holy Spirit that indwells us. Truly, truly, Jesus says, a servant is not greater than his master. I am your master, and your master is a servant, so you be a servant too. Churches go horribly wrong when that equation is disrupted. And those in leadership in churches think they are not to be servants, think they are greater than the Master's example. Serve one another. And what blessing there is, what safety there is in a local church when that happens. And to love one another. Jesse read these words, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Serve one another, love one another. This past week in the church family, let me illustrate that. Here is some of the stuff that I am aware of. And I'm not saying this to hoist our petard as a church. I'm just very glad in a normal week, in the middle of the holidays, I can find some examples. That's a relief to us all, I think. So a couple inviting a visitor to church for lunch last week after a relatively strong hint from the minister. A visit to people who have been bereaved, just arriving on the doorstep. Walks with people who need encouragement. Folk from the international group invited to a wedding service and a keli. A letter written to someone with counsel from God's Word. A teenager cleaning the church yesterday, the toilets, to get it ready for Sunday. Love and encouragement expressed to someone who has lost their job. Now, that night with Jesus, there must have been raw, felt emotion in the room. Some of you have been watching the open golf this week. Sporting illustrations are, are never wise because some people look at me and say, what's golf? You should know, okay. A few people in Chalmers have been lucky to be there. Some have been there every day. That's ridiculous. It is one of the biggest sporting events 
even listening to the radio or watching the TV, you can experience the emotion. On Friday, Tiger, who's a golfer, played his last round in the Open at St. Andrews. Great shots graced the hallowed turf all day, but not from Tiger. He's spent. He's human. He's frail. And the great man cried as he walked through the wall of noise and emotion to the last screen. And what's striking is that the, sh the memory of the day was not all of the great shots that were played, but that felt emotion. Just like when Rory McIlroy wins this afternoon. And that night with the disciples, there must have been intense, raw, felt emotion in that room. Moved by Jesus washing their feet, his call to them to serve and love one another, and all in the context of Jesus saying the time had come for him to leave them, to leave them, to go to be with his Father, but before that to go to the cross. Added to that, Jesus saying, imagine the scene that one of them, one of them, and their eyes would, 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 would glance around, look down, look up. One of them would betray him. One of his very close, intimate group who had been with him for three years of his earthly ministry, one whose feet he had just washed. And there is no evidence that he did not wash Judas' feet. would betray him. Shock and fear. And Jesus himself is troubled in his spirit. Who is it? It is Judas. Some understand that Jesus is identifying Judas. Others are confused. They think it's to do with the money bag and the food. And, and, and would you have believed it? Would you have not searched for any rational explanation? John records how Satan entered into Judas and that he left the room and went out into the night. Judas went out into the night. Likewise, Nicodemus went out into the night. Both had been with Jesus. Both had seen Jesus. Both listened to Jesus. But they rejected him and went out of his presence into the night. There is the division of Christ before our eyes, inside with Jesus in the light, outside apart from Jesus in the dark. Believers are people of the day. Unbelievers are people of the night. Are you inside with Christ in the light or outside apart from Him in the dark? Come into the light. Stay in the light. Peter stays in the light, but he makes a promise he cannot keep yet. He wants to follow Jesus. He wants to lay down his life. He will in time, but not before Christ has laid down his life for him. Now, this account, and we're on to number four, 
this account is so uh, realistic. Jesus' disciples are confused, and they are bewildered, and they are afraid. They do not understand what is happening. Their confusion and fear is expressed in their questions. Why have I stopped? I I just get a sense that people either here or who are listening online who are really, really struggling to hold on to God or to Christ. And all this stuff is kind of bouncing off our hearts and off our heads. Listen again to the Lord Jesus. Trust in me. Believe in me. Don't think for a minute that walking out into the dark is better. Stay in the light with Jesus. Now, the disciples are confused and afraid. We know that from their questions. Where are you going? Peter's question. Why can't I follow you now? Then Thomas, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Philip, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And I'm not going to kind of forensically... um, analyze what's behind each question. They're just questions from people who have no idea what's going on, why their Lord and Master is leaving them. They just don't understand, and they're frightened. They're all extrapolations of the question, why? Now, the disciples' questions are specific to the particular events. Two comments before we look at how Jesus answers the questions, and they are important. Two comments. First, if you are interested or wanting to understand about Jesus, I mean, I'm speaking of how people are in that situation, but not yet a Christian, you will have questions inevitably. If you are not yet a Christian, you may be interested or you may be feeling convicted about sin, sensing a need and a desire for forgiveness. Do you know that there's a world of a difference between asking questions for the sake of asking questions or even asking questions that you are interested in knowing the answer to? There is a world of a difference between that and asking questions and wanting answers because your hearts are troubled. The questions Peter, Thomas, and Philip ask here and the answers Jesus gives explain the central truths of the Christian faith. We'll come to that in a minute. Second comment, questioning Jesus and God is not just for people who are not Christians. As Christians, we have doubts and uncertainties and fears. Asking questions is fine. 
But let me appeal to you as I appeal to myself to listen to the answers from the Lord Jesus. And where do we find the answers? In the Bible. We'll see in a week's time or two weeks' time that verse in the second half of John 14, the helper of the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to you remembrance all that I have said to you. John, all that I have said to you, don't worry, the Holy Spirit will bring it back to your mind and you will write down word for word what I said in this room now. Which is why as a church, we are so tied to and inflexible on the Word of God as the habitat for the people of God. And again, if, 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 if you are in that place where you know you need to hear the words, let not your hearts be troubled, trust in God, trust also in me, let me encourage you to, like a bird, in a bird sanctuary to find your way to the habitat where Christians live, which is the Word of God. So elusive, so hard to find, so hard to find. Now, just before we uh, come to listen to Jesus' answers, notice Jesus' kindness. The Bible does not only teach us the promises and the purposes of God, it reveals to us the character of God. Look at verse 33 of chapter 13. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. My dear child, my dear boy, my dear girl, run it to the extent of intimacy and emotion and dependence and you have not gone far enough. The night before he goes to the cross, to suffer the agony of forsakenness of his Father and to bear the wrath of God for all believers, Jesus turns to the likes of Peter, who will deny him in a few hours, and even to Judas, who betrayed him. And he says to them, My dear boy, my dear child. And it might be today that all that you can take from John 14 in your trouble are these words, my dear child. And what's your response? Abba, Father, my dear dad. Now, as we come to a conclusion, listen to Jesus' answers. Just in case you're worried that point six is not like got 82 subpoints. And uh, we, we must preach and touch on the answers, and I want you to, to follow up and to read and to study and to pray about Jesus' answers. But it's the context that prepares us to hear them. And I refer to this on the outline as Jesus' clarity and conviction, and in contrast to our uncertainty and confusion, that is clarity and certainty and convictions in Jesus' answers. You know, Jesus never lacks compassion, but he is never confused. He never lacks compassion, but he knows what's going on and he knows what to say. 
He knows exactly that night where he is going and why and how we can follow him in his relationship with the Father. And as affectionately and as patiently concerned as Jesus is in response to our questions, so also as assuredly and plainly and confidently he answers them. Now, whatever trouble we are in, whatever questions we have, Jesus' answers here take us to the very heart of the gospel. And Jesus does not answer every specific, why has this happened? What am I going to do? How do I move forward from here? What he does is he brings us to the central core truths about our identity in him and our eternal safety in Christ. Now, the first question, where are you going? Two-part answer. One, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow afterwards. Jesus is speaking about going to the cross, and neither Peter nor anyone can follow him to the cross in the sense of achieving what he alone can achieve in the cross in order to save us from our sins, in order to wash us clean, Jesus must go alone to the cross to lay down his life as our servant to save us. One day Peter would lay down his life, but not to save himself or anyone else. That really struck us in holiday in Rome outside the Basilica as Peter and Paul. Peter's martyrdom did not save anyone. It is only Jesus' death. All of us need forgiveness. What a crystal clear answer from Jesus. He goes alone to Calvary. He dies alone at Calvary. As Christians, we are called to take up a cross. For some, that means giving their life, but never to save ourselves or others we are saved through Christ's death alone. And so there is the first part of the first answer to the first question. With the backdrop, let not your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. I am going to the cross. You cannot come. I will die for you and wash your sins clean. The second part of the answer, where are you going, is in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 14 to prepare a place for you. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go and prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. What a difference that statement is from just trust me, it'll all work out in the end. And that concrete stuff, isn't it? What a wonderfully clear statement of promise. I am going to be with my Father in heaven to prepare a place for you, and if for because I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back to you so that you will be there with me. And in the middle of that statement, the strong and beautiful words of reassurance that reveal the pastor heart of Jesus, listen to me. If this were not so, would I have lied to you? What does Jesus mean when he says he will come back and take us to be with him? 
Does it mean as our shepherd, he will be with us in and through the valley of the shadow of death, comforting, guiding, leading, and shepherding us home to heaven? Does it mean his return at the end of the age when our physical bodily resurrection will unite with our souls? I think it could well mean and does mean both of these. The eternal destiny of first our soul and then our body, if it were not so. Would I have told you? Would I have lied to you? And you know the way where I'm going. That's almost like a statement that draws out a question. How can we know the way? Do you want to know the way to heaven? You do know the way to heaven. As many of you do. I am the way. What a difference. The gospel is from religion. What's the way to heaven? Live this way, do this. Find this church, this priest, this minister. No, 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 no. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And what a glorious, glorious statement of clarity and assurance. And what confidence we have in Jesus that he is one with the Father. If you had known me, you would have known my Father. Show us the Father. That is enough for us. Give us the reassurance. And Jesus graciously says, look, I and the Father are one. And if you don't believe me, well, read John's account of the first half of his gospel. So there it is. If you are not a Christian yet, I hope and pray these are the answers to the questions you may have. And so let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. And whatever it is that troubles you, whatever questions you have as Christians, listen to the clarity of Christ. It's not that his answers are indifferent to your particular needs. It's that it puts our circumstances in the big frame of our eternal security and safety. I go to the cross for you to forgive your sins. I go to heaven to prepare a place for you. I am coming back to get you. I am the way and the truth and the life. I am the only way. I and the Father are one. So let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. What does this whole narrative finish? And point seven is for next time. Even the Christian who is utterly beleaguered, having listened to the words of the Lord Jesus, is in a position to take to heart this wonderful promise in verses 12 to 14 to play their part in taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And that's a promise about witness. 
Jesus' mission was limited to a tiny part of the world. He didn't, he didn't get to go to Japan. But the Brashes did. Or Africa. Or Scotland. Or Asia. And isn't it striking that this commission to mission comes off the back of trust in me. One of the elusive things in my life is, is my wife's conviction, absolute settled conviction, that God is in control of our lives and that we are immortal until he determines otherwise. And we need not live our lives day by day with the fretfulness and the worries and the anxieties that means I can't go there because I'm too afraid and I can't do this because I can't do this. And all occasionally you just get a glimpse into God and you have an absolute trust in him and life will not break us. And we can be liberated, however bleak and weary we are, to go into the harvest fields of the earth, trusting in God, trusting in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, there is much to ponder on in these glorious portions of Scripture. And John, as a writer, doesn't write in a logical way. He writes secularly, and we pray that you would sort out the clutter if what I have said is confusing or secular, and take the precious truths of the gospel and lay them on our hearts. Lay them on the hearts of those who are troubled, And we pray that that impulse and that truth to lean on and to trust in Jesus and the Father, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit will be the application of the Word of God to our hearts today. And we know, Lord, who these people are. It might be us who need to turn to Jesus. Help us to help them. Thank you, Jesus, for your extraordinary care of us the night before you took our hell that we might share your heaven. And we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.